Comrades, you are listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. You are listening to Good Morning Comrade. Uh, just Jeff today uh, with a very special guest. Uh, I've actually been a very long time fan of how long have you been doing? Like two, three years? Four uh, years. Wow, four years. Four so years. So you're not long after us. And, um, uh, big fan of uh, Jason and Pascal and and Gene. We've had Ben on the show multiple times. Ben Burgess. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, and uh, it's really great to welcome to uh, the show uh, the one and only Mr. Jason Miles. Uh, how are you today, wow. sir? Uh, I'm doing. I'm doing all right. I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing all right, man. I'm, I'm doing all right. My voice is a little still blown out. I went to a a, a concert here in Mexico. To see a death metal band, um, and uh, you know, just doing a little screaming at the show. Some of my voice is, is definitely blown out from a few days ago. Cool. Well, um, and actually, um, the first time we ever spo- uh, spoke over over messages, you said you had a certain uh, familiarity with the city of New Orleans. Yeah, you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the South because I worked in the Gulf of Mexico. So when I would come back home, I cooked in on oil rigs. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't think. And so, definitely played shows there when I was touring with the band, and stayed there when I would come on land. I'd stay there, you know, one or two nights um, after coming back on on shore. And I I got to know uh, artists in New Orleans, um, and I got to know a lot of the Jackson Street artists from him. And he did a lot of the covers for my band, Le Fin Absolute Du Monde. His name is Brandon Jenkins. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, a, it's a city that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, definitely would love to do like a live TIR thing in, in NOLA. Um, talk to Ben about it. We've, we've definitely talked about it a few times. Um, even Catherine Lou brought it up to us when we were over at her house a few months ago after a live thing we did at, at the university. So mm-hmm. um, I have a, a special affinity. It's almost, if I could live anywhere besides California, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on your show, um, <laughs> I would, I, I'm really not, because I don't do that whole like, oh, I'd love to live in Philly. Like, no, I don't want to live in Philly. It snows there, like F that. It's um, too cold. <laughs> the, the South and especially the the southern louisiana yeah um, and the food too man that's <laughs> one of the oh, things dude, that we moved to yeah. richmond like the food scene is just like, like it, it's good oh, here that's it right. you're in richmond oh check it there that's used right. to be the last time i was in richmond virginia there were the venue that we were at was a was a new orleans style restaurant mm-hmm. okay and it was near it was near the campus was it the vcu is that the school yeah, in, in richmond yeah. It's near VCU, and I wish I could tell you the name. It is whatever whatever restaurant has kind of a big performance room in the back. Okay. Oh, and I it's don't know. a Cajun I'm, restaurant. 
Okay, I'm learning it's, the it's, city, it's a, so I'm not exactly sure, but uh, I hope the food was good. I mean, I, I get the very food skeptical. was legit. The food was legit. Okay. I mean, there was other stuff we saw there at that show that was not fun, but um, uh-huh. you know, we could get into that later if you want. But mm-hmm. um, I remember that we all loved the food because we had, I think we had just we coming from New Orleans. We're going to New Orleans. I think we're going to New Orleans. We're going from the east, south, west. Like we're going southwest at that point. So we we were playing Richmond. I think we were in New Orleans like the next night or a couple Mm -hmm. nights after that. And uh, no, it was a lot of fun. I wish I remember the name of that place, but it was a really cool spot. Damn it. Mm -hmm. It's all right. Drawing a blank. Well, we'll figure it out. Maybe we'll piece it together. But uh, that's cool, man. Um, and well, so uh, we did bring you on the show to talk about uh, mm-hmm. a book that you have coming out. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. so this show goes out. out on Saturday, on Saturday rather. Uh, it mm-hmm. is currently out. I beg your pardon. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Called uh, "I Was a Teenage Anarchist." Do you want to talk a little bit about? Da da da. Well, yeah, you want to talk a little bit about? Here and, yeah, and also specifically what it's referencing uh, in the title and, and <laughs> what's going on it's, there. It's it's referencing a song. A lot of stuff that I write, actually, most of the stuff I write, um, I, I use song titles. Um, mm-hmm. Earlier editors didn't like it. It took a while for the people at Sublation to to let me do that. As far as um, uh, titles to essays, they wanted to go the Jacobin route and have something that's a little more. It, it, you know, this title makes sense for the crowd that's gonna that's gonna read it, and I'm more like, well, let me have a title that may resonate with more people that aren't just this small academic milieu. Bring um, people in. Yeah, and and uh, I lived. So Jesus, I'm so sorry. I guess I gotta give a little background on myself. Okay. So I've done music, heavy music, for a long time. Um, I was in a band with my ex called Le Fin Absolute du Monde. For those New Orleans listeners, uh, we had a French <laughs> name, and um, and, and uh, then I was in a band. After she left, I was in a band called Bitter Lake with with a bunch of good friends of mine, and um, I lived in a, a warehouse in West Oakland, California, that all my musical heroes recorded and rehearsed in. So Faith No More, all the '80s metal guys, Exodus, Testament, Death Angel. Um, all the hip hop guys, Too Short, E Forty, um, In Vogue, <laughs> Dwayne Wiggins from Tony 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 got a video made for us once because he thought we were interesting when he walked in on a practice. <laughs> like it was like that kind of vibe, um, almost a kind of a little magical space to live in. But it was gnarly. It was a warehouse. We weren't supposed to live there. Um, but getting to know a lot of the people from the early hardcore days, like I got to become, you know, really tight with, you know, the guys from Flipper and bands like that. Um, I started to question, um, what's the word, certain cultures within the scene, because I mm-hmm. always felt like something that hardcore punk does and, you know, metal, I guess you could say any genre music does is there's like these requirements to be in the scene, right? Oh, you can't be in the, you can't be here. Your, your guitar is too pointy or you're, you're too this, you're too that. You know what I mean? You know, 
Like you're, oh, you're using those amps. So you're one of those guys. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I started asking questions and, you know, again, living in this space, I got to kind of sort of interview people, which is why the book launch for this, for this mini book pamphlet is going to be filled with people that were part of the metal and, and punk scenes, uh, Chris Contos from Machine Head and, and uh, oh, nice. uh, Craig LaCicero from Forbidden and Rick Hulnote from Exodus. So it's not just me talking about this book, but it's also going to be people having a chance to have like a Q&A with the guys that were that were there. Part but, of it. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. But 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 what what I what I was drawing a parallel to in the, in the essay is these cultures that we see of of uh, deconstruction, which which I call the culture of no, right? Mm -hmm. um, we just want to tear everything down. Um, we're against everything and the cultures of authenticity. Mm. And those two cultures to me kind of exist in hardcore punk, definitely. And I actually found some academic essays <laughs> written about this. And, and they exist in the left, in the contemporary left, what we want to call the left. As my co-host Pascal Robert says, we don't have left in this country anymore we have leftists but among leftists i guess you can say mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's like that is a similar scene to i guess what you're identifying here yeah. is the sort of like what it what left we have or the what leftists we have how they associate with one another is largely seen like and not necessarily movement like is what you're describing is Ooh, that accurate? yeah yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be that mean, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean. Like, like. Nah, I know you're not. Worth. I think it's. I think it's something that we actually do have to grapple with if we're going to at least. Like, I'm not judging anybody, but like assessing the situation so that we can construct, um, construct that movement. Right. It's yeah. basically a very embryonic sort of place we find ourselves in that. Mm. I mean, just continue to be these like ebbs and flows in these sort of like scenes that you that you describe, um, sort of like drawing these little lines around themselves and protecting the sanctity of these scenes or finding ways to connect these kind of like little pockets or whatever that we have of a left and and bringing them together. I guess that's a good way to sort of start the conversation. Right. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I was trying to draw out. And I used kind of the early days of hardcore punk and juxtaposed it to where we are kind of with with the post Bernie Sanders left, because I think that's really where we really start to see this world that we exist in start to blow up in post 2016. And um, when you think about the early days of punk and the kind of culture of deconstruction, the culture of no we don't want to fuck with you. We don't want this. We don't want that. There's this idea that people have that this was a political movement. And for some people it might've been, but ultimately it's just kind of the culture of no. And then the culture of authenticity, they, they work, they work against each other to, to really prevent the scene from having an infrastructure to build any sort of, um, to build any anything into the mainstream to get like mainstream appeal and ultimately what happens is your movement gets swallowed up and commodified by capital so if you think about 
what really kills hardcore punk. I mean, it still exists to this day, but there was a lot of momentum it had. And it was very, very vehemently, because it was kind of born out of being vehemently against the rising conservative movement that you get in Thatcher's UK and, and Reagan's uh, California. Um, and, or Reagan's America, rather. Mm-hmm. And after 84... <laughs> Yeah, he's a governor. But but <laughs> after, after 84, it's almost like you could you could uh feel the uh, everything kind of fade away for a lot of these guys for various different reasons. You know, some people had addictions, there were record label issues like anybody else. But there really was no infrastructure that was built. And you mean like infrastructure. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you kind of have to ask yourself this question because by the time these guys get it, like a second life, especially after the post-punk, and I'm, and I'm skipping a lot of, of parts of the, of the essay, but um, by the time you get to like the, the Warp Tour era, a lot of these guys that we assume are these like, oh, these guys are hardcore, anti-capitalist, blah, 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 blah. You start to look back and go, were people really anti-capitalist or were they anti-consumerism? Or is it just an aesthetic? Say again? I said, or is it just an aesthetic? I mean, like, honestly, is it just like, uh, am it I? It becomes, yeah. Yeah. So, like, yeah. the thing that you're commodifying is the anti commodification. Like, it's just the, um, I mean, again, I feel like I'm being harsh again. And, you know, this is me talking, not you. But, like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, again, we have to assess these things in order to move forward. But, like, it feels like the aesthetic of, you know, the the I guess like you described the culture of no um, yeah. is is something that is it's I guess it's more than anything just as commodifiable as any other thing. <laughs> there is. And, and we find out how commodifiable it is in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Chase is a perfect example. <laughs> Who would you say? I'm sorry, you broke it. JT shirts is a perfect example. Yes. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and I talk about that. And, you know, one hot topic, hot topic starts as a record store, actually. Mm-hmm. And when it becomes, you know, a mall thing, it's like, well, we can we can go get our um, we can go buy our rebellion. You know, there's a there's a moment in the early 80s and late 70s where, excuse me, you have to make your your clothes, you have to make your anarchy shirts. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's why you can just go way. Yeah. And then that is just lifted by by corporations. You can buy it to buy into that culture and be like, I'm a part of that now. <laughs> But but it's still outsider culture, right? Piercings mm-hmm. are still outsider culture. Dyeing your hair crazy colors is still outsider culture. By the time we get to Nirvana in 94, be, you're able to commodify outsider culture by saying it's not punk, it's grunge. Mm-hmm. It's not rebellion, it's important. And a lot of people start to buy into grunge, which in my opinion, Nirvana and all the grunge bands to me, again, I, I kind of get into this in the thing. And if you've listened to TIR, you know how I feel about the idea that grunge is a genre. Grunge is a fashion more than it is a genre because mm-hmm. those bands don't sound the same. But if you think, let's just take Nirvana, for example. Nirvana is more Black Flag and Flipper than they are Black Sabbath. Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, their roots to me are way more in in Black Sabbath and 70s rock, more fuzzed out tones. And a lot of those bands were kind of fuzzed out. But when we listen to Nirvana, to me, that's hardcore punk from from the 80s, from, 
from Southern California. And they mm-hmm. even say, I mean, what happens? Chris Novoselic joins Flipper and, and uh, Dave Grohl gets, uh, gets uh, Pat Smear to join the Foo Fighters. So, of mm-hmm. course, they're telling you where their influences lie. It lies in, in this hardcore punk music. But uh, the industry was able to change the name of it. And now it's more easily digestible. But it's the same thing. Like literally, right? It's um, almost, go ahead. Um, it's almost like there's a, a little bit of a regional filter through it too. Like like Southern California mm-hmm. is the sort of like punk, and if you just go mm-hmm. a little bit north to Seattle, then it's grunge. Like that's just the difference. It's, that's the yeah. difference. It's, but, it's, <laughs> but if you ask those guys now, here's the here's the thing. I've gotten to be in a room with engineers on Nevermind. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to be in a room with buzz osborne these guys are punks mm-hmm. they're not grunge dudes they would look at you sideways if you called them grunge dudes but again back to when we think about names for genres if i said the melvins the last thing you think about is they're a grunge band mm-hmm. but the, this is a band that is a direct link to, to nirvana so this idea right that this this genre so to speak quote unquote um, it's not a genre. It's just hardcore punk with a different name, different aesthetic, and yeah. different aesthetic. But now we're marketing it to to everybody. It's it's easily digestible. So your rebellion, your no, is now it's just an aesthetic now. And how does that make these people feel that have a layer of authenticity, mm-hmm. right? And that becomes kind of the internal fight of someone like Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Because there's other people in that scene. Identified. You know, Alice in Chains had no problem signing Major Label. That's what they wanted. I mean, ultimately, that's what all those guys want. But, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have the same internal squabbles because they're not a punk band. Mm-hmm. No, you know, they, yeah. they, were, they were more hair, hair metal-ish, hard rock-ish. And then, you know, they release, was it Dirt is the first record? Or, I forget the first record of Alice in Chains. But I, I, I'm not going to lie, dude. I wasn't the biggest fan of that kind of music until probably mm-hmm. like a year or so ago i started like listening to it i was like oh this ain't bad but anyway um you can say the same thing about quote unquote movements in our contemporary left if you look at something mm-hmm. like blm where i may not agree with a lot of aspects of blm and i definitely have my critiques of it mm-hmm. um and I would advise people to read Cedric Johnson's After Black Lives Matter book, which is a series of essays that he writes. Um, that's easily commodified, but it almost feels commodifiable. Like that was the goal in the first place. Mm-hmm. And what is activism when activism becomes commodifiable? Mm-hmm. What is your leftism when your leftism is commodifiable? Because mm-hmm. now um, your entrance into the mainstream is just, is it marketable, I guess? Can mm-hmm. foundations get behind you? Um, and then are you really dangerous at that point to, to capital, to power? And that was kind of why I, I, I wrote the, the piece was because I looked at this genre of music that I love. And I hate when people act as if music is rebellion in and of itself. 
or music's going to start a revolution in and of itself. I was one of those people that believed that. I'm not going to sit here and lie to anybody and say I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I lived a little, <laughs> as I toured all over the planet, it's like to build up a movement, it takes time. You got to be in town, not just for one night, but for years. You got to get to know people and you got to build community. A mosh pit, while it may be fun, ain't community. But we trick ourselves into thinking that these things are are rebellious acts and they're political. I wrote a song and it's about effing the man. And, you know, I remember when Trump got elected, I'm sure you remember this too. People said, well, we're going to get some great music out of it. It's like, mm-hmm. so what? Also, we you know what? <laughs> we, we, we did. You know, I actually looked that up. We did a show about that as well. Like, what what was the rebellious music that's come out during this moment? And uh, and I was shocked to see that it really wasn't what I thought it was. And also, when you think about what's rebellious music, it doesn't resonate the same with everybody. When I first started the show, I used to ask people to give you know, me revolution, right? Yes. When I start, I'm sorry. When I started, this is revolution. I apologize. When I started, this no, is revolution. I just want to make sure that people know what the show is so they can find oh, it. Oh yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm bad at this, right? When I started, this is revolution um, because it, because my roots are in music and I lived in a music warehouse. Um, I used to ask all my guests, give me your top 10 songs that are the soundtrack to revolution for you. Oof. And I think I had like 24 guests before I changed the name. The show used to be called Soundwaves. I lived in the Soundwave Studios, this warehouse. Mm-hmm. And a friend convinced me to change it to This Is Revolution, which is a lyric of, of a Bitter Lake song. And mm-hmm. um, everybody's list was always different. Genres always blew my mind mm-hmm. about what, what people thought was the soundtrack to, to the revolution. And that really also, too, got me thinking, again, before, while I'm getting ready to write this piece, like, oh, wow, you know, it's foolish to think that just this music is really what rebellion sounds like. Because mm-hmm. in the songs that people gave me, and a lot of people I'm talking to are literal activists. Mm-hmm. It was never, never the same from hip hop to like weird world stuff. <laughs> stuff that weird Hawaiian stuff that to me sounded like the opposite of of rebellion but when you start to look at the words you're like oh okay i get it i get it i get where you're coming from and you're coming from a different place and i dig that and we have to understand that if we want to get serious about these ideas around what it is building a strong left and not be so sectarian in our beliefs our new beliefs because as you're saying this is an embryonic stage that we're in and you don't want to go the way of grunge where you can capture the world for a moment and but then you get captured in the process yep and that's the way i feel because i think we're all kind of subjected to media or political kayfabe mm, which term, is, <laughs> uh, you know and and i i really did or I am in the process of doing this feature length documentary on the idea of, of political kayfabe and how it, how it plays out for us, how we can only see the world through binary lenses 
how we only see these issues through through really simplistic binary lenses. Go ahead. And just for people who don't know, kayfabe is sort of like the lie or the sort of like internal like. Um, so it's a, it's a specifically a wrestling term. Um, mm -hmm. And it's basically the like, oh, this is the story that we're telling and we're keeping it up even outside of like what's happening on stage or in the ring or on television. You're keeping it up so that you the the illusion um, and like actual reality kind of run into one another. I just wanted to so, just to benefit our audience and just sort of define that. So, you know, and I'll go even a little deeper. Mm -hmm. In the wrestling world, there's a term called a work, and a work yeah. means that this is this is the fake stuff. Mm -hmm. This is the fake DDT where I'm, my arm's going to hit mm -hmm. before your head hits. Excuse mm -hmm. me. Or like CM a Punk is going to do an interview or like a promo yeah. where he like screams at everybody and says, this is why I'm quitting the WWE or whatever on WWE television. On WWE, yeah, with cameras all over him. <laughs> And no one to do the close-up. That's like, a oh, work, right? Happening right now. <laughs> th that that's called a work. A shoot is when really stop. Sorry, sorry. It's all good, man. I can, sorry, I can get it back in. When stuff really happens, that's the shoot. And so, um, you don't want to work yourself into a shoot, but you don't want to shoot yourself into. You want to shoot yourself into work, but that's kayfabe. So that's constantly yeah. happening. So if you look at any kind of um so situation kind, in the it. media oh dude it, it's it. i'm a big doing the, okay so in doing the work for the kayfabe documentary which started off as a little mini video essay so i do video essays on my this is revolution channel i haven't done one in a long time because kayfabe has taken up what over a year for me mm -hmm. um it ended up being usually my my video essays are about 1800 words kayfabe mm -hmm. is well over ten thousand. I it's think so over, interesting. I think we're over like 15,000 now. And and so <laughs> one of the things that I do, if you're a wrestling fan, one of the things I do, there's a whole chapter in Kayfabe where we talk about the Montreal screw job. Mm. One and of the most the Montreal incidents in wrestling history. So where... the Montreal, I'll, I'll try to be, you know, you you might be a little brief, might be a little quicker than me. So you go, Jeff. Explain okay, what it so is. So the Montreal screw job is a famous infamous incident in wrestling history it happened at survivor series in 1997 where brett the hitman Hart, the like good guy well he was a bad guy in the story at the time but he has a a match with john michaels and he was leaving the wwe and like there's this mm -hmm. story about how he's supposed to like win this match and his last show and then retire with grace and then go to the wcw the other company and what ends up happening is um vince mcmahon the owner of the wwe and Shawn michaels essentially like make it so that bret hart like loses and supposedly he's not supposed to see it coming you know whether mm -hmm. or not when there's so much like mystery and controversy surrounding mm -hmm. this one specific incident it has hung like a not like a necessarily a bad shadow over like not just the wwe not just sean not just vince not just brett but like over all of wrestling to the point where like people look at specific things and they're like is that real was that supposed to happen 
You know, I, I think I described it fairly well. I and mean, it's also no, you know, that, that's that's it's, 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 you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that gets into it. Mm-hmm. And I and I'll I'll pull back a little even further for people. WWE at the time is actually losing a lot of its audience to WW or WCW. WCW, WCW yeah, has a is going after a different demographic. They're they're doing stuff live, whereas WWE uh, is so cool, <laughs> right? They're 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 doing stuff and, and they're they're going after a different demographic. They're kind of doing more sex and violence stuff. Mm-hmm. WWE is still selling toys to children because that's been their their right. bread and butter. You know, for over to dolls that sweat and all the stupid yeah. stuff <laughs> that you plug in and they sweat. So, so, yeah, as they're losing their tentpole talent to WCW, yeah, this whole thing happens between kind of two baby faces, and baby faces are what you would maybe call a hero yeah. character yeah. In, in wrestling. And this is when we talk about works and shoots. So there really was a contract dispute between Brett and Vince McMahon. Apparently, Brett really didn't like Shawn Michaels. Those two things are real. Everything else, it's kind of up into interpretation. But what happens is we all know wrestling is fake. And fake in the sense of we know that the outcomes are preordained. And we also know champions, you don't earn your championship like you do in any other sport where you literally defeat people. And you win matches. The only way you earn a championship is if somebody says, you got the look, your matches are bringing in all the attention, and you're a big earner. That's if the it's only... in the script. <laughs> yeah, but, but you have to be written into the script. You have to prove yeah. that you are an earner and you can keep a title. That's why we have things like the Intercontinental title. So mm-hmm. you can kind of see, okay, this cat is the, is the, is the dude <laughs> that, that, that's going to – and and why I talk about all this is because there's a moment where you can I, get can I behind this one other thing. I'm sorry. There's also because of the like wacky weird history of wrestling, there also and the sort of like rules of it, there also is a history of like um backstabbings where mm-hmm. somebody is actually a real life like this guy can just hook you and pin you mm-hmm. and like go into business for himself and like like this is something that goes back into the old old days where like where somebody will just like do a backstab it happens in 4k where everybody sees it and like the promoters is like well i guess that guy's a champion now if you want to keep the story real or keep the kayfabe up right work again working yourself into a shoot shooting yep. yourself into a work right but kayfabe is always moving it's not static yeah so we have to think about the world like that as well so what happens is you really see quick, this this HID, uh you listen to bhivlp new orleans 102.3 jason miles uh you can also check his book out uh i was a teenage anarchist from where is it from it's from um I'm everyday sorry. analysis everyday oh, analysis uh check out this is revolution on youtube uh continue about kayfabe i'm sorry yeah, no, it's all good it's all good it's all good so what happens is with this it, it starts to break the, the fourth wall which is something we've never seen before mm-hmm. reality television is real big at this time and reality television in the sense of shows like jerry springer and what happens in shows like jerry springer and, and maury povich and all these other shows ricky lake for those that don't <laughs> remember uh, the 90s was a great time if you stayed at home from school. So, oh so oh the, these, these shows, what they're doing is with, you are not the father. The the lady runs in the back and the camera follows her and you think you're getting these real reactions. Everything is, is staged and scripted. So, 
it's kayfabe right so when we go see this wrestling match we're going behind the scenes these guys do something that wrestling doesn't really do they go on real sports shows and talk about their beef vince mm -hmm. mcmahon has a legitimate black eye because apparently he got hit by bret hart does he get hit for the kayfabe did he get hit in real life i don't know but i'll tell you this much vince mcmahon at that moment for a lot of people no one knew he owned wwe no yeah, he, was he was an announcer. So he turns into the evil mastermind that we all know him now as Vince McMahon in this moment. Now, think about the election. And a super duper mega star, too, by the way, by being the evil right? boss. <laughs> all these things happen because of this, this incident that we're talking about. Now, think about the elections in 2016 and how perfect this is for people to understand kayfabe. Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton. You got your baby face and you got your heels. <laughs> you got, you got, you got, um, Donald Trump is kind of like this new wrestling anti-hero almost heel. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is a true baby face and Hillary Clinton is actually playing the role of, of kind of heel, if yeah. you will, because not a lot of people dig her. And they really play into the kayfabe and we're not really listening to what people are saying anymore because if we listen to anything donald trump says and i really hate all the think pieces that go well you know he was actually talking about economic instability and blah 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 blah. Oh, i'm like God. i get that i get that and i've actually sat and and listened i've read transcripts of trump's speeches um i think christian parenti writes on this pretty well mm -hmm. but i say this still when you know who donald trump is he's been in the media landscape for over 40 years probably closer to 50. we've known who he is he's been a brand in america for at least 40 years also a brand in wrestling <laughs> he's in the wrestling hall of fame this the, i talk about that i talk about that in kayfabe that he becomes he becomes the evil empire guy as well through his good friend vince mcmahon they have similar upbringings we, mm -hmm. i don't have to take too long to get into that but mm -hmm what what happens for a lot of people is he's able to play this role because he knows how to play it through wrestling and again kayfabe it works and shoots there's always reality and there's always the work with donald trump it's all the work with bernie sanders there's the shoot or or there there's the yeah there's the shoot and and those things are kind of working at the same time and you see people kind of fall for trump's work mm -hmm. and it's and it becomes much like wrestling where we all know the outcome we all know this guy isn't really a bad guy but mm -hmm. we just start watching the show because it's so entertaining yes and politics now for people news for people is entertainment oh totally and that's a problem it's not only is it entertainment not only any is it entertainment it's entertainment that is on 24 hours a day it's never ending entertainment the sh the, the the kayfabe is always up on cnn on msnbc on fox news on newsmax youtube on it's on yeah, youtube too people up. in our world people in our world the, the Again, it's always moving. It's all it's mm -hmm. it's always going. No, you Twitch and, streamers. No. <laughs> oh, dude, I, I saw a video today 
And again, the whole thing about kayfabe is it's constantly in motion, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not a static thing of this is fake. It's just constantly in motion, the work in the shoot. I saw a, a video of a person today protesting at one of these rallies. And the first thing they said, they were a person of color. And they were like, hey, look at these racist police. They're out here trying to stop us because we're, we're, we're a bunch of black and brown people. They weren't doing that on January 6th. I'm like, but you're standing in front of a bunch of white people. So first of all, <laughs> that, what you said doesn't, doesn't pan out to me. Number two, January 6th is 100% different. And she goes, this is, a, this is a peaceful protest. I was like, well, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. January 6th wasn't a peaceful protest. Literally, people died. What the police, uh, the Capitol Police were definitely outnumbered. Um, and I'm not justifying any actions towards protesters by law enforcement, but. No, of course. I mean, if, like, if, if I'm, I'm going. Really speaking, when these kinds of things do pop up. I mean, look, I'm, I grew up in New Orleans. I've, I've seen, you know, when cops right? do not handle a situation and when they don't know how to handle a situation. Like at Mardi Gras, know how to Oof. manage a crowd there but in certain other cities they don't and they get nervous and they freak out and like i'm not saying cops ain't racist or whatever but yeah, like, i'm not saying any of that i'm not saying any of that like, i'm just but, saying that the presentation uh -huh. of this mm -hmm. right screaming on the camera like look mm -hmm. at these cops we're having here a peaceful protest and you see people like cursing out cops and and a friend of mine was 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 brought up a good point he goes you know if you want to talk about the discipline that the MLKs of the world and even the Malcolm X's of the world had when it came to what they saw as nonviolence to kind of be um, stoic and steadfast in their like, I'm going to show you how horrible these people can be and how they're going to try to take away our humanity by how evil they are. Just, we're not going to yell at them and all the other crap. We're just going to stand our ground and they're going to try to beat us down. You know, they, they had... They, they knew what they were trying to do, right? And and this ain't the same thing if we want to talk about quote unquote peaceful protests. Also, mm -hmm. too, if you're trying to uh, compare your protest to January 6th, again, we're not talking about people that had permits with the city <laughs> to do their protests, right? We're talking about cats that showed up and and were trying to tear stuff down. People that had guns, and and again, uh, people died. So you're not the same. You're not posing anywhere near the same threat as January 6th people did. So when somebody is screaming in the cop's face and the cop feels they can push you down, well, they might they might be a little rough with you. They might be very rough with you either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they may. But but the whole thing was like this person is yelling in front of a cop and the cop just goes, move along. And they moved along, but they still kept yelling. I'm like, OK, dude, last I checked. Jeff, stop me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. When you're when you're opposing the state, you know when you're going out there like, hey, they may tear gases, I may get a baton to the ribs or the groin, but I know I'm standing with comrades, and we're going against the state. We may get arrested, we may face state violence. That I know that going in. That's like the 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 
the the ante, you know, if you're at a poker table, like that's what you, <laughs> what you need <laughs> just to just to play the game that's on the table, right? That's that I'm I'm walking in the door like I know this is about to happen when I walk in the possibility door. Possibility that can happen, at least, you know. So to act as if it's not supposed to happen, I was like, well, because my first reaction was, well, what did you want the state to do at that point? Mm-hmm. You know, come on, man. And I would so, also sort of like. I would also sort of like say that I don't know if if you're trying to tell a story, which we all are trying to do. Mm-hmm. If you're trying mm-hmm. to like put forward a convincing story, if you're like stoically, you know, getting your, you know, getting arrested when you're clearly not doing anything wrong, um, except for maybe like violating some BS law or whatever, or yeah, standing yeah, yeah. against the war, or you know, standing for healthcare or something like that. And you get walked away in handcuffs, like it's pretty clear and very obvious to that 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 that, that, that you're in the right. Mm-hmm. Then you can actually use that in a uh, in a way that's. I mean, look, the morals of it all, like we're on the right side of this. I'm 100 percent convinced mm-hmm. of that. So like, let's not mm-hmm. even worry about yeah. that. How do we how do we be the most effective in getting you know Joe Sixpack? And like every single normie person in the world to at least not oppose us at worst, you know, or, you know, and, and, and support us at best, you know, how do you win over to the point that the, of like most of most, most people, or at least enough people so that um, they're at least mm-hmm. not against you and mm-hmm. win as many people over to your side as possible. And that's what mass politics looks like. And that's where it gets lost in kayfabe. Mm-hmm. And these There's lines, an, like earlier, yeah. these little cultural lines. So, if you think that the Vietnam War was stopped because somebody put a flower in a in a rifle, and <laughs> not the Viet Cong, that's one. <laughs> but that's the powerful optic mm-hmm. from a certain generation that wants you to believe that that generation did everything and is the greatest generation mm-hmm. to walk this earth. There's that also- optic still yeah. has has I, I think that optic that optic is still powerful to this day i think Beautiful. leather coats and 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 berets are still a powerful optic to this day for people to think like this is what revolution looks like this is what rebellion looks like so if you really believe that protest is the end all be all like that's the end goal for you then this yelling and screaming in front of a camera kind of becomes everybody's end goal and now it's giving you validity in certain spaces to be an authentic voice but what are you really yelling about and what are you really doing you know you you know that very thing unfortunately because of the constant commodification that happens within our society Mm-hmm. Um, nonprofit. I mean, like this is not even controversial. Like, not yeah. that, that. Um, and look, I'm not against every nonprofit or anything like that. They're they're, you know, I work in labor. We work with a lot of nonprofits, but like the part of like what these groups are are sort of like tasked with doing is, um, is continuing to exist. And the assumption mm-hmm. sort of made by them is that our our mere existence does mm-hmm. the world good and so like if you if you sort of internalize that assumption of like just us being here and operating as this group is a sort of 
uh, is a necessary good, then it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> you know? yeah. It doesn't matter yeah. how you operate as long as you can continue to 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 make that 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 entity more powerful um, and more more of a part of the culture. That's um, that's that's sort of like in that logic a good thing. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, that's the kind of difficult world that we operate in when working in, in nonprofits and mm -hmm. nonprofits aren't necessarily a leftist project. I think we have to remember that it really isn't. Apex and, a nonprofit, you know, like, like there's a lot you. of like very bad nonprofits that are out there. I mean, there's nonprofits that, that, you know, can serve some benefit. You know, I worked for a homeless shelter for a nonprofit. I don't believe that they wanted people to stay homeless so they could stay in business. I don't believe that okay. at all. Yeah. Um, I'm not you trying have to say to. that the prophets are the devil or villains or anything like that. I'm just trying to assess. Oh, we, we just we just have to we just have people have to again. Let's break some kayfabe here. Nonprofits are not a leftist project. Yeah, they they Period, fit very blank. neatly within the capitalist structure for a reason because they're not a threat and, to them necessarily. And you can get captured by nonprofits when you believe that there's quote unquote good ones and bad ones. You can get captured by that if you're the person out there yelling in front of a camera and getting a lot of attention really not doing anything other than yelling people like that mm -hmm. there's a reason why blm got all that money yeah i'm thinking of right? a very specific blue vest when you say something like that <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? you feel me though you feel me though like it's it's we there's man i it sounds bad but it's like look you can do all this yelling and screaming and start getting all the attention and you think you're, you're doing something on earth you can be again it's back to kurt cobain and hardcore you can be the most authentic person on earth and now your music and your quote-unquote message is reaching tens of millions of people but you're seeing it reach them in a way where it's not hitting the way you thought it was going to hit and people aren't mad when they hear you and they want to tear up the system. They're hearing you and they're yelling at mom and dad. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of, if you think about what punk is in the eighties, it's this middle finger to an establishment. By the time we get to the late nineties and early two thousands, it's just kind of cute, fun, teenage whimsy of suburban joy with mm -hmm. blank 182 and kind of the pop, the pop punk inception of literally uh, the only point of that kind of quote unquote punk, which is not even the same genre of anything. I would even, I mean, maybe it's a part of like, like the only thing that holds that whole thing together. And if you ask me is the mm -hmm. word punk, but like the whole mm -hmm. point of that is to like piss off your teacher or piss off your mom and dad or like, yeah. just to sort of like be outrageous or whatever, you know, but then it's you a, have to ask yourself, but Jeff, here's the thing. We have to ask yourself, what were we doing in 1982? Yeah, well, that's, that's true. That's so, and, and, and that, and that you just taking yourself a little more seriously. The people that are writing about you now have jobs at Rolling Stone, so they're making your pissing off your teacher sound like it was the biggest thing in the world. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that these cats were all full of crap. I'm not saying Jello Biafra no. is full of crap. I'm just saying that, number one, a music genre isn't a revolution. Number two, it's easy to get captured by capitalist realism. Um, yeah. Again, again, look at all those bands. Most of them end up playing Warp Tour at some point if they're still alive, which mm -hmm. is a corporate festival. If you think Vans is getting run out of somebody's garage, I got bad news for you. Right? <laughs> 
If you think Monster Energy was made in a bathtub somewhere, I got bad news for you. Punk music becomes a way to sell to sell lip piercings at Hot Topic and ripped jeans and energy drinks and skateboards and everything else. It's yeah. faux. It's it's packaged rebellion, mm-hmm. and we see it again with BLM. Mm-hmm. I can get a BLM shirt, and now I'm part of the rebellion. I watched a documentary about Air Jordans. My God, and Spike Lee was in it, and I did a whole, I did oh, a whole video essay about about black cinema where I, I talk about Spike Lee a lot. But Spike Lee is talking about BLM protests and like wearing the Jordans and how that in and of itself is something rebellious. So once your consumer choices become rebellion, once voting is a consumer choice, once politics is a fashion aesthetic, then we've lost the plot. We need to sit down for a second. Uh, I was talking to Cedric Johnson on, on air, I think. And I was like, I feel like the left is the end of Empire Strikes Back. We've been in retreat the whole movie. Luke and Leia is in the ship (laughs) trying to figure out how to regroup. And that's what we need to do. We lost it. You don't lost your hand. Polos and carbonite. You don't even know what's up with Han at the moment. You got to figure out how to get Han ass back. Like that's where everybody's at. And like, how do we? We got to regroup. We got to re-strategize. Figure this out. We lost. We lost. It's not doing well for us. We. That's how I feel right now. I don't have the jubilant feeling of Star Wars. Of uh, of defeating the technologically advanced empire with mm-hmm. grit <laughs> yeah. and hope and a, yeah. and a, and a steadfast and like, belief in the right thing. <laughs> and wearing Jordan, of course, too. <laughs> Can't forget your consumer choices on your way to, to doing shit, man. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's kind of the essence of a lot of the work that I've been doing that I've actually been putting, uh, you know, out on a bigger scale than just my TIR, this revolution YouTube channel. Um, the, the kayfabe movie, hopefully we wanted it done this month. It's not, it's probably going to be done next year. Um, because of the whole Montreal screw job chapter, the director called me up and he goes, Hey man, uh, the transition, it's not, uh, it's not working. <laughs> so I had to write a whole new thousand words for the Montreal screw job, which is why I had so oh, this much is gonna be a big this is gonna be a feature film by the end of it. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's already feature length, dude. It's already an hour and a half. I'm not watching it's already though, an hour and a half. Well, this everything. is the thing. I'm going super punk rock with it, and uh-huh. I'm not gonna put it on any platform. I'm just gonna go all over the country, all over the anywhere that anyone will have me and just do screenings. Live show. Live show. <laughs> go on tour. Live show. Yeah. The revolution will be on tour. <laughs> Dude. Well, come through. Richmond, I want brother, check it. We need to remember that part of this left shit is about sorry. This left good, stuff bro. is about I'll try to give cues. This left <laughs> stuff. <laughs> there you should have a, you should have a really big spike in the in the in the signal. This left stuff is is about community as well. And it's not just online spaces and it's not just a cathartic release and a protest. And then we go back home. It's about building out a real cadre. It's about 
finding real leaders and communities and saying, okay, we need to build some stuff here. We need to build some stuff there so we can actually challenge power because the only way we can challenge power kind of is through our labor unions. And we're seeing, we're seeing that right now with a lot of these labor struggles. That should be a moment. This should be a moment where we kind of draw some hope. Mm -hmm. And and that's where I'm trying to draw my hope in looking at a lot of these labor struggles because we're seeing people go across across ethnic lines, across gender lines, um, and band together as brothers, as comrades um, for for the greater good and take some control. And that's what I am hopeful for. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's why I kind of write these pieces to remind us about this stuff, um, deconstruct some of these myths, and uh, make us think a little bit. But if you disagree with me, you know, definitely email me, call me names. I'm on the internet. I don't hide. <laughs> <laughs> you blow, blow them up in chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People definitely have said some things. I used to respond, and then I took I took Twitter off my phone, and I'm a happier man. Oh. I'm I just have to live on Twitter for work. <laughs> I used to do I used to say I used to say that for a long time, and then I was like, I'm going to take it off because you know Ben Burgess moved next to me. Oh, ben yeah. Burgess was my neighbor. We lived in the same building for for about six months. He came down here to Mexico, and uh, I was like, man, you can't worry about what these a-holes say to you on the internet because that's the internet it's a different thing if we walk down the street and somebody you know challenges you like clubber lang and rocky three if that's not happening to you in real life i just don't care you can call me all kinds of names on the internet you can talk about my mama on the internet i don't care i just i'm 46 <laughs> years old you know i'm on, i'm on the back nine of life right now yeah i gotta start like hugging my kids get ready to be a grandpa and you know learn how to garden and all this other stuff old people are supposed to do that's the stage of life i'm in so, Man, there's old rockers there's old rockers don't 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 say yourself so and, and you know and all them cats know how to garden you know ted from flipper used to water the plants at the studio all the time man so <laughs> that's how i got to know that cat so so you know uh I, i'm i'm in the chill part of my life right now and i'm not trying to get worked up because somebody got mad at me over something I said on the internet. Well, you know, my whole my whole thing is like, even in music, if I didn't dig what was going on, I just felt like I had to be doper than the person that I hated or the thing that I didn't dig. Mm-hmm. The thing that I thought was poser stuff, the thing that I thought was whack, I just had to be better than it. Even with my show, there's so many people that we don't agree with that are in our realm. We don't call them out. We just go, well, Let's just do a show. Sometimes I don't even tell the guys on the show. <laughs> and some people will realize my producer two songs. I'm like, did you do this show because you got mad at the Yes, I did. But which is still petty, know. but it's like a little bit more like it's a little right? bit more rational way to be petty. <laughs> yeah. Like I I don't agree with this point. So let's do a show about why I think this point or this perspective is bad for but people at large. Mean- point and instead of making it about this person or whatever because when you when you do that i mean especially considering the culture that we live in when you look at you know vosh takes down hassan on you know palestine or whatever it's like what value is there to this you know what i mean none none (laughs) but again 
Again, and I don't even know if Fox and Hassan disagree on Palestine. I just said those two names because they're two big streamers. You know what I mean? Huge, huge streamers. Huge streamers. Huge. Stream. You know, I don't know. I, we ran, me and Ben ran into Hassan once in LA. That's a big dude, man. That's a big, big guy. Cat. He's a big so cat. He's a, I, I, he's, he's, a, he's a literal big cat, and he was actually super chill. So cool. I have nothing bad to say about Homeboy. But he's yeah. just not. Also, he's literally not on my radar of like people I, I watch. But anyway, sure. like what you're talking about kind of plays into the whole kayfabe of, of everybody's a part of it. From yeah. mainstream media to independent media, people kind of see that this is a way to get eyeballs and you're going you're gonna to try to instill controversy to get eyeballs. That's the and, game. But I, I, you know, I can't play that game. Good. Maybe that's just the, the stupid punk rocker guy in me that says you got to be true to what you want to do because I got to be in that studio and people that I really admired bands like Faith No More. I got to tour with a band called God Flesh. Um, these are people that they did okay, but they could have zigged and zagged in different ways to sell more records, to be more, more popular, but that wasn't true to themselves. And they were able to eke out a living remaining honest and i've always respected that about those guys i've always really appreciated about those guys and i'm glad those people showed me that i'm glad justin took me out on tour to 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 show me that um so that's what i do with with tir because we definitely get into conversations in production meetings about why don't we cover blah blah and blah and i'm like i that's no, stay away from it. There's really no need for us to do that. It's just people watching it, they hate watching stuff, and it's not necessary. Yeah, I agree. And like, it's not about drama or anything no. like this. As we sort of wind down uh, <laughs> on top of the hour, um, where can we find uh, your book? Sure. And where can we learn more about uh, This Is Revolution? Sure. This is Revolution Podcast is on everywhere you get podcasts, audio. We just hit over a million streams, uh, downloads on, on the audio podcast. And this is Revolution. We live stream on YouTube and Twitch every Tuesday through Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And so I'm in New Orleans. So that would be 8 p.m. Central time and mm -hmm. every Saturday, 11 a.m. Central time. I would love to hear some New Orleans people or see some New Orleans people uh, chime in and ask me about recipes to make the best etouffee since I did cook. Oh, in I, got the South I got you, bro. I got and, you. And, and had, to, had, had to learn from y'all. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but New Orleans definitely, or the South, I should say, in general, definitely helps shape the way I see the world. And uh, I really love that region of the country. I look forward to going back there. Uh, one of the best shows we did on that last tour was a gnarly house show somewhere in New Orleans, brother. And I couldn't tell you exactly where it was. So I really look forward to going back and also seeing some friends down there. Um, the, uh, the, the mini book uh, essay pamphlet, I Was a Teenage Anarchist, is available on Everyday Analysis. If you're a patron to This Is Revolution, I gave it to everybody for free. Um, and that's about it for me. Oh, I have a new article out in Damage Magazine, The Man Who Sold the World about uh, the perils of anti-racism and BLM and how it's used to kneecap the left. 
Great. Well, um, thank you so much. I really uh, enjoyed this conversation, Jason. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to Good Morning Comrade. This is WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. We love you. Bye-bye. Peace. Peace.